أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters ورحمة الله وبركاته I'd like to welcome you all to Another episode of the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa We were discussing the the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which is essentially a major turning point in the life of the Prophet. In our last episode, we spoke about the specific uh, conditions of that treaty, and to continue that uh, discussion. You know, after the treaty was signed, the Prophet ﷺ, he faced some major challenges in terms of uh, getting the Muslims to abide and to submit to the terms of the agreement. Among the challenges that the, the Muslims faced is that if you recall, Suhail ibn Amr was the emissary who was sent by Quraysh. And he had a vested interest in this uh, treaty because two of his sons had converted to Islam. So when you look at the, the historical accounts, you find that one of the things that is mentioned is that one of the sons, one of the sons of Suhail by the name of Abu Jandal, we mentioned him very briefly in our last episode, he had converted to Islam because his older brother had converted. Now, unlike his brother, his older brother, he wasn't able to escape Mecca and join the Muslim community in Medina. And he's unable to hide the fact that he's a Muslim. So his father and his family, they essentially imprison him. They throw him in a dungeon, they shackle him, they put him in chains, and he remains there for many years. So the historical accounts seem to indicate that he was imprisoned for about four years. Somehow, he's able to break free. And he departs Mecca, and he's traveling towards Medina, and suddenly he passes by the valley of Hudaybiyah. Now incidentally, he sees the Muslims and he also sees his father who is negotiating the terms of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So his father, you know, after the, the treaty was signed and one of the conditions of the treaty is that any Muslim who tries to flee Mecca to Medina is to be sent back. So anyone from Quraysh who flees, who tries to go to Medina is to be sent back. Ibn Hisham, he reports the following incident. He says, فَلَمَّا رَأَى سُهَيْلُ أَبَا جَنْدَلْ قَامَ إِلَيْهِ فَضَرَبَ وَجْهَهِ When Suhail saw that his son Abu Jandal had come, he had broken free from prison, Suhail strikes his son on his face. وَأَخَذَ بِتَلْبِيبِ He grabbed him aggressively by his collar 
And Suhail basically says to the Prophet that the first one that this condition, the condition of a runaway from Mecca being sent back to Mecca, the first one that it's going to be applied to is my son. O Muhammad, if you are true to your commitment to this treaty, you have to apply this to my son. He has escaped Mecca and he is to be sent back. So the Prophet ﷺ, he reluctantly, he has to agree to the terms. Now, <clears throat> Abu Jandal is mortified. You know, the fact that he's, after four years, he's able to break free. He finally makes it, makes his way, and he sees, you know, this community of Muslims. The narration says, وَجَعَلَ أَبُوْ جَنْدَلْ يَصْرَخْ بِأَعْلَى صَوْتِهِ Abu Jandal began, began to scream at the top of his lungs, calling out to the, the Muslims, يَا مَعْشَرَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ أَأَرِدْ إِلَى الْمُشْرِكِينَ يَفْتِنُونِي فِي دِينِي Am I to go back and live with the pagans and continue to endure persecution and harassment and abuse. So as you can imagine, many of the Muslims could not accept the fact that a fellow Muslim is just going to be handed over to the mushrikeen. So a lot of Muslims were outraged. You know, of course, Umar ibn al-Khattab was the most vocal in his opposition to the treaty. Now, after Abu Jandal, you know, makes this heartfelt plea and he's begging the Muslims not to allow him to be sent back to Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ, he doesn't have a choice at this moment. He tries to reason and tries to negotiate with Suhail, but he realizes that, you know, they're not going to give in. So the Prophet has to commit to the terms of the treaty. So the Rasulullah he tries to console Abu Jandal. Ibn Hisham, he writes, فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ يَا أَبَا جَنْدَلْ إِصْبِرْ وَاحْتَسِبْ O Abu Jandal, have patience and be disciplined. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ جَاعِلُ لَكَ وَلِمَنْ مَعَكَ مِنَ الْمُسْتَضْعَفِينَ فَرَجًا وَمَخْرَجًا O Abu Jandal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, very soon, He will provide you and your other persecuted brothers, a way out of your suffering. And then he says, That, O Abu Jandal, we have entered into the Quraysh, we have entered into a peace treaty with Quraysh. That we made this exchange, we made this pledge to one another, and we cannot go back on this pledge. So this statement of the Prophet highlights that it wasn't just Abu Jandal who was in, in Mecca. There were a group of Muslims who were basically being held captive. They were there in Mecca and they were not allowed to leave. Mustav'afin, there was a group of persecuted, downtrodden Muslims who were living in Mecca and they had no way out. But the Prophet says to them that be patient. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, very soon He will alleviate your suffering. So you can imagine, you know, this dramatic scene. You know, after the signing of Hudaybiyah, the Muslims were already, you know, they were, 
submitting to it begrudgingly. Umar was questioning the, the very prophethood of Rasulullah. And many of the companions, especially after witnessing, you know, Abu Jandal, a fellow Muslim, being forced to go back to Mecca, many of the Sahaba, they were shaken to the core. In fact, most of them, they opposed the treaty. And some of them, as we mentioned, like Umar ibn al-Khattab, he openly challenged the Prophet. He argued with the Prophet. Could not understand the wisdom behind such a treaty. Now, why was the treaty, why was the treaty of Hudaybiyah so difficult for the Sahaba to accept? We've alluded to some of the reasons in our previous episode, but I just want to share a quotation here by Karen Armstrong, who has written uh, extensively on Islam and the Muslims, and you know she has a book on the life of the Prophet ﷺ called, titled, Muhammad, a Prophet of Our Time. Regarding the, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and why the Sahaba were so opposed to it, she says, and I quote, During the last five years, many Muslims had died for their religion. Others had risked everything and given up family and friends. Yet now Muhammad had calmly handed the advantage back to Quraysh, and the pilgrims must agree to go home meekly, without even forcing the pilgrim issue. The treaty assaulted every single jahili instinct. The Muslim, the, the, many of the Sahaba, they still had these jahili instincts. You know, they still had this pride that how could we allow these people to do us, do this to us? You know, we have the upper hand. When you have the upper hand, you don't relent, you don't give in, you crush your enemies, you fight, you you go with a full show of force. So this treaty indeed, you know, uh, assaulted every single jahili instinct within them. Now, although the treaty forbids the Muslims from entering Mecca that year, the Prophet ﷺ, in, in the Valley of Hudaybiyah, he instructs his companions to complete the final rites of the pilgrimage, to basically slaughter their, uh, the, uh, the animals and shave or do taqseer. Now, many of the companions, they refuse to listen. Rasulullah is telling them, let us, you know, complete our final rites of the pilgrimage and let's go back. In the mind of many of the Sahaba, we didn't even perform the pilgrimage. You know, why should we complete the, the sacraments of the pilgrimage? while we haven't even entered the sanctuary. So Rasulullah is telling them that let's shave our heads, let's sacrifice the animals, shave our heads and go back, we've finished. So many of them are refusing to abide by the Prophet's orders. Now Rasulullah seeing that you know, there's essentially a mutiny forming. On the one hand, you have companions who are opposed to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. On the other hand, you have, you know, the companions refusing to complete the sacraments of the pilgrimage. There's a refusal on all, for, all fronts. So discouraged by their inaction, Rasulullah he seeks the advice of one of his honorable wives. He seeks the advice of Umm Salama. 
she suggests to the Prophet that, Ya Rasulullah, you just complete the rites of the pilgrimage, you sacrifice, you shave, and go back, leave. Don't negotiate with them. She essentially tells the Prophet that you don't need to convince them. It's not your job to negotiate with them. You know what your duty is. You know, make the sacrifice, shave your head, and return to Medina. And don't even engage them. And the Prophet ﷺ, he did. And just as Umm Salama predicted, uh, the companions eventually, they had no choice. The Prophet left and they had to follow him. And there's a very beautiful point here, my dear brothers and sisters. The fact that, you know, this shows you the type of relationship the Prophet had with some of his wives. Not all of them, but some of them at least, especially the likes of Umm Salama, a woman of piety, a woman of wisdom. The Prophet ﷺ, he valued their input. He valued you know, their perspective. And on occasions, the Prophet ﷺ would, would uh, share his difficulties with them. And he would listen attentively to their feedback. And this shows you, you know, what a wonderful husband the Prophet is and, and ultimately what a great leader he is. That he, is, he has a very consultative style of leadership. Of course, ultimately, Rasulullah makes the final decision. He's the messenger of God. But he sets a very beautiful precedent for all leaders that they should be receptive. They should listen. They should be attentive. And they should be consultative. Now on their way back to Medina, so the Muslims essentially remain at the Valley of Hudaybiyah for about 20 days. They depart Hudaybiyah and they're heading back to Medina. The narrations say that Jibra'il descends upon the Prophet and he reveals the entirety of Surah Al-Fatih. Surah Al-Fatih, which is the 48th chapter of the Holy Qur'an. And Surah Al-Fatih begins with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina Verily we have granted you a clear victory. Now you can just imagine the scene. You know, the majority of the Muslims are walking back feeling disappointed, feeling defeated, feeling demoralized. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals, inna We have granted you a clear victory. Now Surah Al-Fatih, of course, it derives its name from the first ayah, which describes the victory of that treaty, the treaty of Hudaybiyah. You know, it's amazing how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He doesn't really call any of the, the, uh, the battles you know, Fathan Mubina. Whereas this peace treaty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to it as a great, as a clear fath, a clear victory. Now when you look at Surah Al-Fath, you see that the, the next several ayat provide a spiritual commentary on those who obeyed the Prophet and who attended the, the bay'ah, bay'at al-Ridwan the Ridwan pledge, as opposed to the Bedouins. So there's a contrast here between those who obey the Prophet and those who are committed to their pledge to the Prophet and those Munafiqeen and the Bedouins who did not join the Prophet because they were opportunistic and they didn't see that there was anything in it for them. You know, they're very select 
they're very selective uh, regarding their participation in these campaigns with the Prophet. And then of course, if you go through Surah Al-Fat, you find that the Surah ends with a description of taqwa, a description of God consciousness. And the Qur'an highlights that this invitation towards taqwa is not something that is new to the Qur'an. This invitation to God consciousness is a dominant theme in the Torah of Musa and in the Injil of Isa salam. Every prophet of God, every divine scripture, if you boil down, if you want to get to the crux of the message, the essence of every divine message is to help humanity develop God consciousness. And through that God consciousness, they can attain uh, eternal prosperity. Now a question here that arises is that how can, it, how can a peace treaty be a victory? You know, many people wonder, what is it about the Treaty of Hudaybiyah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to it in very emphatic terms? That indeed we have granted you a clear victory. There is this emphasis that this is undoubtedly a great victory for the Prophet, a great victory for Islam. Now, some of the some of the Muslims, some of the, the, the companions who were there, who were eyewitnesses to the treaty, who were familiar with all of the terms of the treaty. They could not digest the idea that this was a victory. Now, the Battle of Badr, yes, the Battle of Badr to the Muslim imagination is, is a very clear victory. You know, the Battle of Khandaq, clear victory. But how is it that this treaty, where it seems that we basically handed over the advantage to the Mushrikeen, how is that considered a victory? Because to them, the Muslims, you know, they walked away defeated and the pagans of Mecca, you know, essentially won that standoff. Now, in order for us to appreciate the, the great achievement, which is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and why it was such a great victory, and why it was critical to the spread of Islam, we have to look at what was happening before the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So if you look at, if we begin with the second year of the Hijrah, of course we know in, in the Meccan period as we discussed, the Muslims were basically persecuted. The Muslims were just trying to survive. They were not even able to take up arms against their enemies. They just had to be patient. They had to endure. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had not given them permission to, to fight. Up until... The second year after the Hijrah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala finally gives permission to the, the, the Muslim community to defend themselves against their enemies. In the second year after the Hijrah, the Muslims engaged in 14 military operations, eight of which were led by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And if you recall, my dear brothers and sisters, a military operation that is led by the Prophet is called Ghazwa. It's called Ghazwa. And a military operation that's not led by the Prophet, where the Prophet just sends someone to lead it, it's called a Sariya. 
We've mentioned these terms, but just as a reminder. So in the second year after the Hijrah, 14 military operations, eight are led by the Prophet. And of course, in that second year after the Hijrah, the major, the, the, the major battle that took place, which is known to all of us, is the Battle of Badr, which took, which took place in the month of Ramadan. And then you have the third year after the Hijrah. I just want you to understand how many military operations the Muslims had to organize. Just to give you a sense of you know, the lack of safety and security uh, during this period. So in the third year after the Hijrah, the Muslims engaged in six military operations. Four of them were led by Rasulullah and the most significant of those military expeditions was the Battle of Uhud. The Battle of Uhud took place in the third year after the Hijrah. And then you go to the fourth year after the Hijrah. So these are the years leading up to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. In the fourth year after the Hijrah, the Muslims engage in eight military campaigns. Three of them were led by the Prophet and perhaps the most significant was the expulsion of Banu Nadir, the expulsion of that famous Jewish tribe, Banu Nadir. In the fifth year after the Hijrah, which is one year before Hudaybiyah, the Muslims engage in four military operations. Three of them are led by Rasulullah, the most significant of them being the Battle of Khandaq, the Battle of Ahzab, which was basically where the Muslims were on the brink of destruction. And of course, you have the, uh, the execution of Banu Quraidah, the, ex the execution of those who uh, betrayed and committed treason against uh, the Muslims. They were uh, put to death for the crime of treason. And then you have the sixth year after the Hijrah. So this is so the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was signed at the end of the year, basically in the month of the Qa'dah, as we mentioned. In the sixth year after the Hijrah, the Muslims engaged in 24 military operations. Three of them were led by the Prophet, and the, the rest of them were led by his companions. He had delegated it to his companions. So look at how much the Muslims had to endure in terms of self-defense, in terms of protection, and guaranteeing the security of the Muslims in Medina. So prior to Hudaybiyah, we see that Rasulullah was constantly defending himself. And he's constantly defending the Muslims against external and internal enemies. External enemies like Quraysh, you know, those who are coming from, from Mecca, you know, the tribes of Ghatafan and so on. And then you have internal enemies, Banu Nadir, Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Quraydha. So the Prophet ﷺ goes with the Muslim community through these years of turmoil. Imagine living in such an environment where year after year, you're trying to figure out you know, who's going to attack, who's going to you know, shed the blood of Muslims, who's going to betray us. So as a result of this, Rasulullah really did not have the opportunity to spread the message of Islam to the rest of the Arabian Peninsula, 
The Prophet ﷺ was busy, he was preoccupied with defending the Islamic State, defending the, the Muslim community in Medina. Now, so the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was signed at the end of the sixth year after the, the Hijrah. Now look at what happens after Hudaybiyah, just to give you a sense as to why the Qur'an calls the Treaty of Hudaybiyah Fathan Mubina. Now in the seventh year after the Hijrah, in the month of Muharram, according to some reports, the Battle of Khaybar takes place. The fortress of Khaybar, which belonged to the Jews, it's conquered. And this is significant, especially from an economic standpoint. After the conquest of Khaybar, there was an immense amount of wealth that was gained by the Muslims because they basically inherited all of the spoils uh, from that fortress. So there's a transition here in terms of uh, economic status. So the economic status of the Muslims was elevated after the conquest of Khaybar. You know, a lot of them, a lot of the Muslims benefited from the spoils that were collected uh, in the Battle of Khaybar, and a lot of them, a lot of their poverty was alleviated because of that. And of course, this also solidified the uh, the uh, this, the position of the Prophet in the Arabian Peninsula. In his the fact that he was able to conquer the fortress of Khaybar sent a message. To the neighboring tribes and to the to the uh, the leaders of the neighboring regions, that Muhammad and his followers are a force to be reckoned with. You know, these are not just a group of downtrodden uh, believers; you know, they have power. In the eighth year after the Hijrah, in the month of Ramadan, Mecca is conquered without any bloodshed. So, what ends up happening? And we'll speak about this in a little bit more detail. But just in a nutshell, one of the allies of the pagans attacks the Muslims. And the Muslims basically say that, listen, Rasulullah sends a message to Quraysh that either you, you punish your ally who violated the terms of the agreement or you disassociate yourselves from them and we, we punish them. Quraysh ignored the Prophet. And this allowed the Prophet to basically set aside the, uh, the terms of the agreement. And ultimately, Rasulullah marches on Mecca and he conquers Mecca without any bloodshed. The Prophet enters Mecca with 10,000 armed soldiers. And this is significant because in the sixth year after the Hijrah, just two years earlier, the Prophet had about 1,400 companions who came with him to perform the pilgrimage. In a span of two years, the numbers of the Muslims had grown exponentially. And especially in the ninth year after the Hijrah, you know, uh, because of you know, the letters that the Prophet had sent, because after the treaty was signed, the Prophet ﷺ began to send, let, send letters to the neighboring leaders. He would send letters to the, to the emperors and to the kings of the neighboring regions and he would invite them to Islam. And many of the, the neighboring tribes 
they, en- they entered the fold of Islam. So the number of Muslims grows exponentially in this period, especially in the ninth year after the Hijrah. And this is why the ninth year after the Hijrah is known as Amul Wufud, the year of the delegations. Delegations are now coming to the Prophet. People in large groups are coming to the Prophet and embracing the religion of Islam. Now, the, in terms of the benefits of the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, of course, the Muslims of Medina and the Quraysh of Mecca, you know, prior to the treaty of Hudaybiyah, they did not have the freedom to visit each other. So a Muslim in Medina was not able to go into Meccan territory. And vice versa, a Meccan could not enter, a, a, a pagan in Mecca could not freely enter Medina. Now, with the Treaty of Hudaybiyah in place, Muslims could travel to Mecca without any fear. You know, there was this understanding that you could travel to Mecca without any fear. If a pagan wanted to visit Medina, they were free to do so. So it's as if those border restrictions were lifted. right? Now the Muslims of Mecca, uh, one of the benefits of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is that those Muslims who were being held captive in Mecca, one of the conditions of the agreement was they, that they weren't to be harassed because of their religion. Yes, they, they can remain there, they stay in Mecca, but they have to be treated with dignity. They should not be abused, they should not be discriminated against because of their faith. Furthermore, another benefit of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is that the Muslims, you know, prior to the treaty, they could not travel outside of Medina without fear of being attacked. So, before Hudaybiyah, there was no serious propagation of Islam that was occurring. The Muslims were basically, uh, they were restricted to Medina and they had to remain there for safety reasons, for security reasons. With the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, now they were free to go out, to, to meet with you know, different leaders, to meet with different groups, with different tribes, and propagate Islam. It gave them that freedom to do da'wah. And another important benefit of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is that this is the first time that Quraysh is actually acknowledging the Prophet as a political equal. Now prior to Hudaybiyah, Rasulullah and the Muslims, they were just rebels. They were renegades. They were outcasts. But now, with this treaty, Quraysh is acknowledging that the Prophet is a legitimate, independent, political entity. Also what we find, another benefit to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is that the Meccan leaders, they realized firsthand that the Prophet ﷺ was not a warmonger as they had imagined. You know, they had painted this picture in their minds that the Prophet ﷺ is someone who's bloodthirsty, you know, he's always looking for a fight. But in the negotiations, in the negotiations of this treaty, they saw that the Prophet ﷺ was willing to make concessions, even though he has the upper hand, even though the Prophet ﷺ technically could have fought and he would have probably defeated Quraysh. But the fact that he was willing to make concessions and he was willing to make accommodations because he valued peace. 
The Prophet did not want to shed blood. Whenever there is an opportunity to resolve the matter without violence, the Prophet ﷺ would always be inclined to the path of diplomacy. So this allowed many of the mushrikeen who had developed this false image of the Prophet as being a warmonger, this allowed them to see him in a new light. They saw him as a wise leader. They saw him as someone who was interested in peace, who was not interested in you know, violence and taking advantage of their vulnerability. And finally, those who accompanied the Prophet in Hudaybiyah, you know, they were 1400. Whereas in the conquest of Mecca, there were 10,000 well-armed Muslims. So one of the, the benefits, which is essentially a benefit of the, having the freedom to propagate Islam, that now you have more Muslims. Now you have more Muslims to, uh, to defend, to defend the, the Islamic State. Now we come to the second ayah of Surah Al-Fatih. The second ayah of this surah is probably one of the most challenging uh, verses in terms of theological analysis. Because when you look at this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He explains why He granted the Prophet this clear victory in Hudaybiyah. Because this lam, liyaghfira, is basically lamu ta'lil. It's you know, for it's for this reason we gave you this clear victory. Verse number two: Liyaghfira lakallahu ma taqaddam min dhambika wa ma taakhar wa yutim ni'matahu alayk wa yahdiyak siratan mustaqima wa yansurak Allahu nasran aziza. So Allah in the first verse He says, "Indeed, we have granted you a clear victory." Verse number two of Surah Al-Fatih, so that Allah may forgive you what passed of your sins and what is to come. And He may complete His blessings upon you. And He may guide you to the right path. And He may help you with a mighty help. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in this ayah, in these, you know, uh, in verse number two and three, he mentions four outcomes of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. The first is related to the maghfirah of the Prophet. The second is, The completion of the divine blessing upon the Prophet. And that he may guide you to the straight path. That he may guide you to the straight path. And the fourth is, that he may help you with a mighty help. Now, the last three of these outcomes, you know, these are easily understood. But the first one that is mentioned poses a challenging uh, uh, theological uh, question. And that is, what does the Treaty of Hudaybiyah have to do with Allah forgiving all of the Prophet's past sins and future sins that he, he may commit? And also this verse calls into question the very usma of the Prophet 
Now, what, of the, what have the Mufassireen of the Qur'an said about this verse? What have they said about this ayah? Now, if you, if you review the, the major opinions of the most prominent Sunni ulama, you find that the main opinions are as follows. Are as follows. The first opinion by Sunni scholars is that this ayah is saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive the Prophet's sins that he committed before the commencement of his prophethood and Allah will forgive the sins that he commits after uh, the commencement of the prophet of prophethood. So they say that yes, you know, the reason so they say means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to forgive your sins, O Muhammad, the sins that you committed before your nubuwa, as well as the sins that you committed after your nubuwa. Second opinion is that no, Allah is saying that I will forgive you your sins and your mistakes and your errors that you committed before the fath, before Hudaybiyah, and the sins and the mistakes and the errors that you will commit after Hudaybiyah. Number three is that, no, this is speaking in general terms. Allah is saying that, O Muhammad, I will forgive all of your past sins and I will forgive all of your future sins. And this is a special promise that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving to His Prophet. So, I gave you this victory because I wanted to elevate you and I wanted to honor you. And one of the ways in which I honor you is that I forgive everything that you did in the past and I will forgive anything that you might do in the future. Some scholars, some Sunni ulama have seen that this is problematic to ascribe sin to the Prophet. Now, you know, there's a wide variety of opinions about the Asma of the Prophet in the Sunni tradition. Some say that, you know, he, he can commit minor sins unintentionally um, some say that he can make mistakes, you know, that you know he can maybe neglect some mustahabat, etc. So when it comes to the our Sunni, uh, when it comes to Sunni scholars, there's difference of opinion about the the degree of his asma and the scope of his asma, and this is what you know, and this is what prompted some Sunni scholars to say that listen, we can't cannot refer to the Prophet. The Prophet is the master of the Prophets. He's the best of the Prophets. So this is, this is not someone who is going to sin. And therefore they say that past sins refers to Adam and future sins refers to the sins of your community. So some, scholar, some Sunni scholars have said that Allah forgave the sin of Adam in honor of Rasulullah. This is what, what is meant by لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهُ مَا تَقَدَّبْ لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهُ مَا تَقَدَّمَ It's referring to Adam, that in honor of you, Ya Rasulullah, Adam was forgiven, and the future sins of your community will be forgiven because in honor of you. Now, of course, Shia scholars do not accept this interpretation. They don't accept this idea that لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهُ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ ذَنْبِكَ وَمَا تَأَخَرُ they don't accept that this is uh, this verse is ascribing sin to the Prophet. Shia ulama 
they say that Rasulullah is ma'soom, he's sinless, he's infallible from all sins, major sins and minor sins, intentional sins and unintentional sins. Whether those sins are before his nubu'ah or after, we believe in the full infallibility of the Prophet from birth until death. Why? For rational reasons, but also for scriptural reasons. Among the scriptural reasons is that when you look at the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to unconditionally obey the Prophet. Allah doesn't say, Obey him you know, when he does good or when he does righteous acts. Obey him when he's not making a mistake. No, it's, it's mutlaq. It's absolute. Surah An-Nisa, verse 49. Ya amanu, O you who believe, Allaha wa rasul. Obey Allah and obey the messenger. Absolute. There's no condition here. Our obedience to the Prophet must be absolute. So if the Prophet can make mistakes or if he makes if he commits minor sins and I'm following the Prophet, we're gonna we're gonna run into a contradiction here, and I'll explain what that contradiction is in a moment. So why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expect unconditional obedience to someone who's fallible, someone who has the potential to misguide us? Surah An-Nisa, another ayah, verse 64, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ رَسُولٍ إِلَّا لِيُطَاعَ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is speaking about all prophets, all messengers. Allah says, we did not send any prophet except so that he may be obeyed by the will of God. Our responsibility is to unconditionally obey the prophets. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in fact, He says in Surah, in surah An-Nisa, verse 80, مَنْ يُطِعَ الرَّسُولَ فَقَدْ أَطَاعَ اللَّهِ Whoever obeys the messenger has actually obeyed Allah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is error-free. Obeying the Prophet is like obeying God. When you commit sins, if you follow someone who's committing a sin and you commit a sin, are you obeying God? No, you're not obeying God. So this verse highlights that obedience to the messenger is always going to be obedience to Allah. And the only way for you to always be in a state of obedience to Allah is for you to be sinless. Because any sin that can emanate, that can be performed by a messenger, that means that they have, they have departed from the domain of God's obedience. So there are at least 10 other ayat in the Qur'an where Allah uses fi'l amr, He uses the imperative verb to order the prophets, to, or to order the believers to obey the prophets and the, and the messengers. And there are many ayat in the Qur'an where Allah describes the virtue of obeying the prophets and the dire consequences of disobeying them. For instance, in Surah An-Nisa, verse 14, Allah says, وَمَنْ يَعْصِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَيَتَعَدَّ حُدُودًا يُدْخِلْهُ نَارًا خَالِدًا فِيهَا وَلَهُ عَذَابٌ مُهِينٌ But whoever disobeys Allah and His Messenger and exceeds their limits will be cast into hell to stay there forever. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is threatening those who don't obey the Prophet. And they will suffer a humiliating punishment. 
So on the one hand, we have verses in the Qur'an that tell us to unconditionally obey the prophets. And we have other ayat in the Qur'an where Allah tells us, do not obey sinners. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Najm, He says, فَلَا تُطِعِ الْمُكَذِّبِينَ وَدُّوا لَوْ تُدْهِنُ فَيُدْهِنُونَ وَلَا تُطِعْ كُلَّ حَلَّافٍ مَّهِينَ هَمَّازٍ مَّشَّاءٍ بِنَمِيمٍ لِلْخَيْرِ مُعْتَدٍ أَثِيمٍ So do not obey those who accuse you of lying. And do not obey any mean swearer, any halaf. Do not obey any forbidder of good. Do not obey the one who steps beyond the limits. Steps beyond the limits means they, they step beyond the limits set by God. Do not obey the sinner. Mu'tadin Athim. Athim is a sinner. Allah is telling us, do not obey a sinner. If the Prophet were to commit sins, we have we're in a very awkward situation. On the one hand, Allah says you have to absolutely obey the Prophet. And on the other hand, Allah is telling us, do not obey the sinner. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is too just to give us contradictory commandments. It's as if someone is telling you, jump and don't jump at the same time. This calls into question the adala of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the justice of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah 76 verse 24, He says, وَلَا أو كَفُورًا And do not obey among them a sinner or an ungrateful person. So the fact that Allah says, do not obey sinners, and the fact that Allah says, unconditionally obey the messengers and the prophets, the conclusion, the obvious conclusion has to be what? That the prophets and the messengers are sinless. Because if they were not, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not have commanded us to unconditionally obey them. So we go back to the second ayah of, the second and the third ayah of Surah Al-Fatih. The translation is what? So that Allah may forgive for you what passed of your sins and what is to come. And He may complete, and he may complete His blessings upon you. And He may guide you to the, straight, to, the right, to the right path. And He may help you a mighty help. So the interpretation put forth by Sunni ulama, for the most part, is problematic. Because it contradicts those verses in the Qur'an that confirm the asma, the infallibility of the Prophet. And also, it's irrelevant to the issue of the peace treaty. What is the relationship between the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala essentially giving a blank check to the Prophet to do whatever he wants? If we accept the main Sunni view, this means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted the Prophet this clear victory so he could be essentially be above the law. So that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can forgive his past sins and he also pardons his future sins. Are we to believe that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa is above the law of God? He is, the, he is the one who's teaching the law of God. How does it make sense that we are prohibited from sinning and we are punished if we sin, but Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa if he sins, he's not punished. It doesn't even make sense. It's irrelevant. How is it even connected to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah? And this is where we come to uh, the interpretation of Shia scholars. 
I'll share with I'll share with you just two. Sheikh Atusi, who died in 460 after Hijra, he was you know the the leading scholar of the Shia. He was the Marja of the time. He was a great student of Sheikh Al Mufid and Sayyid Al Murtada. And after he uh, after he left Baghdad after his library was burned and there was sectarian tension in Baghdad, Sheikh Atusi. You know, and after his library was burned, he decided to relocate to Najaf. And because Sheikh Atusi was such a great scholar, he, he became like a magnet that drew in other scholars who wanted to benefit from his knowledge. And he is the one who established the Hawza of Najaf that still stands today. So Sheikh Atusi is essentially the founder, the establisher of the Islamic seminary in Najaf. Sheikh Atusi was a polymath. This was a man who is the author of two of the four Kutub al Arba. He's the author of two of the four uh, main canonical hadith sources in the Shia tradition. He was a merja of his time. He was an expert in Ilm al Rajal. He also wrote a tafsir of the Quran known as Tafsir al Tibyan. He makes a comment on this ayah. Shaykh Atusi says that the then, the sin that's referred to in this ayah is not the sin of the Prophet, because the Prophet is ma'asum, but rather it's referring to the sins of the Ummah of Rasulullah. So when the ayah says, لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهُ مَا تَقَدَّمِ مِنْ ذَنْبِكَ وَمَا تَأَخَرَ It means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive the past sins of my Ummah, and He will forgive the future sins through the shafa'ah of Rasulullah. So the sin, although it is attributed to the Prophet, it's actually referring to the Prophet's people. And we have this, and this is common in the Arabic language. So for example, the Quran would say, you know, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الْقَرِيَ Ask the people. So the Quran will say, ask, فَاسْأَلُوا uh, الْقَرِيَ Ask the village. When in reality, you don't ask a village, you ask the people of the village. So, even though the sin is attributed to the Prophet, it's actually referring to the, the Prophet's people. Allama Taba'i offers what I, what I humbly believe is uh, the best opinion. And his opinion, well, see, one of the problems with Shaykh Atusi's opinion is that the, interpre- the interpretation is good because it, it negates uh, any sin from the Prophet. It preserves the infallibility of the Prophet. But the problem is, it still doesn't explain the connection between. It doesn't explain the connection with the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and this is where you see the brilliance of Allama Tabatabai. Allama Tabatabai, he says, the sins refer to the consequences of the Prophet's policy towards Quraysh. So the Prophet his policy was with Quraysh was that I'm going to speak out against your idols. I'm going, to, I'm going to speak out against your, your deviant beliefs. And the consequences of his policies was what? That the Quraysh fought him, they persecuted him, they marginalized him and his, his community. So by this treaty, Allah has put a lid to the consequences of the Prophet's policies. So prior to Hudaybiyah, the Quraysh would punish the Prophet for his preaching, they would punish him for his beliefs and for his policies. 
But Hudaybiyah basically put a lid on those consequences. So what Alama Tabatabai does here is that he takes the word ghafara and then he takes it back to their literal meaning. So the word then technically means sin. But in its literal meaning, it means the tail of something. You know, dhanabul arnab, the tail of the rabbit. So dhanab, so dhanab comes from the word dhanab, which basically means the consequence of something. And ghafara, yes, the technical meaning is to forgive, but literally it means to cover, to cover something. So, Alama Tabatabai is basically saying that Allah granted the Prophet this clear victory, this, which is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, so that He may protect you, He may cover you from the consequences of the past and future policies with Quraysh. And this indeed was a great ni'mah, and this makes much more sense. Because if, if you now look at the benefits of the Treaty of, of uh, Hudaybiyah according to the Qur'an, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah covered and neutralized the propaganda and the attacks of Quraysh against the Prophet. Because now that's it, they had to commit to peace. Prior to Hudaybiyah, there were consequences to the Prophet's policies. There were consequences to his actions. But now, Allah has put a lid. He's covered up those consequences. Number two, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah completed the blessings. Because Allah says, لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهُ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ ذَنْبِكَ وَمَا تَأَخَّرَ وَيُتِمَّ وَيُتِمَّ نِعْمَتَهُ عَلَيْكَ وَيُتِمَّ نِعْمَتَهُ عَلَيْكَ He completed the blessings. What blessing? by facilitating the environment where the Prophet would gain the upper hand over the pagans of Mecca. Because Allah had promised that Islam would eventually have the upper hand. Number three is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the Treaty of Hudaybiyah provides guidance to the Prophet on how to lead to the final victory. How to essentially you know, conquer Mecca, how to gain that final victory over his enemies. And finally, وَيَنْصُرَكَ اللَّهُ نَصْرًا عَزِيزًا Granting victory, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah allowed, it created the environment, it facilitated the eventual conquest of Mecca, where the Prophet now is entering with force. He's entering with a mighty army of 10,000. And after the conquest of Mecca, the entire Arabian Peninsula virtually enters into the fold of Islam. So as you see, my dear brothers and sisters, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah had massive ramifications. It essentially was a major turning point. And inshallah, as we will see in the coming episodes, Islam is going to continue to grow and to grow and to grow until ultimately a religion that began with only three people, Rasulullah, Khadija, and Ali, suddenly people are entering this faith in large groups. As Allah says in Surah An-Nasr, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا Inshallah, in our 
Uh, next episode, we'll speak about some of the things that the Prophet did after the signing of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, specifically looking at the, the letters that the Prophet sends to some of the, uh, the neighboring rulers of his time. Thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for tuning in. I look forward to having you join me in our subsequent uh, discussions on the life of Prophet Muhammad. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.